called Praying with Paul, learning how to pray for one another from the Apostle Paul. And we've been looking at them in a way to help us, as that subtitle says, help us learn how to pray for each other, for fellow Christians. And we continue that series this week, and I want to look at this prayer in particular in light of the day that um, this Sunday is, which is, of course, Mother's Day. And there are many passages we could go to, many themes we could go address on Mother's Day. But rather than take a break from our series, I thought, what better encouragement can we have and can we find this morning than, be, than to be a church that prays for our moms? But not only prays for our moms, but prays with our moms. To join in the prayers of the moms of our church. That's the title of this morning's message, Joining in a Mother's Prayers. Or Joining in a Mother's Prayer. Now that title is perhaps a little bit inaccurate uh, because we know that this letter of Philippians was not written by a mother. It was written by the Apostle Paul and uh, along with him, with Timothy, you see in verse 1. So our voice, verses were not written by a mother. They weren't even written by a father. Paul was a single man. He was not married. He had no children. But if you remember a few weeks ago in his letters, he often addresses those he's writing to in terms of his spiritual children. He addresses them as his spiritual children. First Thessalonians chapter one, he says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our very own selves. So he addresses himself as a mother. And then later on in that same letter, he addresses them to, to the, addresses himself to them as a father with his children, exhorting, encouraging and charging. Paul views the churches that he writes to as his spiritual children, especially the churches that he established and planted himself like Thessalonica and like the church in Philippi. And here in this prayer of Philippians, he holds out to the Philippian believers what he is praying for them and helps them to, to grow up to be, in a sense, spiritually. So as we look at this prayer, we look at it through the eyes of someone who is praying for their children, biological children, but also spiritual children. As a part of the church, not only do we have the privilege of being involved in the spiritual growth of our own children's lives, we also have the privilege and the command to play a role in the development of the children of the other families within our church. And one of those roles that we can play is to pray for them. Like the elderly saint I mentioned a, a few weeks ago, the one from Scotland who died on his knees in prayer with the prayer list of the young men and the young high school boys that he taught in Sunday school. He died on his knees with their names in his hand as he was praying for them. We have a great privilege of praying for the children of this church, even if they are not our own biological children. So what should we be praying for them? How should we be, how should we pray? Let's read verses 9 through 11 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy write this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. Before we look at this prayer any further, let's stop and 
pray ourselves. Father, we ask for your help this morning that you would send your spirit into this, into our midst this morning. You've promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them. So, Father, we ask that you truly would be in the midst of us. We cling to that promise this morning and we pray that we would be awakened to the reality of that promise, that we are in your presence as we gather here together looking at your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before we jump into the context, we're going to jump right into the the points for this morning. I don't have an opening story or illustration, so we're going to jump right into the points for this morning. And the, the first thing I want us to see in this prayer has to do with the context. Before we get to the content, let's look at the context of this prayer. And what I want us to see is that there are two reminders that Paul gives us in this prayer for our own prayers. Two reminders from this prayer. And, and the first reminder is this, and that is that we should not forget to pray for our children's greatest need. As we look at an overview of this prayer before getting into the specifics, we're reminded that we should not neglect and not forget to pray for the greatest need that our children have. And that greatest need, of course, is their spiritual need. We've mentioned and noticed in Paul's prayer that he prays for the big things, and he particularly prays for the eternal things, and he prays for the spiritual things and needs of the church. The church of Philippi surely had many needs, many physical needs, many urgent needs. If we would go back to Acts chapter 16 and see the context of the planting of the church in Philippi, we would see that it planted with a very obscure group of people. It started with a rich businesswoman by the name of Lydia who was praying down by the river. She was, the Lord opened up her eyes and she was saved and the church began to meet in her house. And they added to that group that met in her house a poor servant girl who was enslaved and was under demonic oppression. And Paul freed her and then her masters were upset. So they set her free and she had nowhere to go. And she becomes part of this church. And then added to that, we have a a rough and tough jailer who was scared out of his wits when God showed up at a worship service in his prison as Paul and Silas are singing in their jail cell. Those are the three individuals along with their households that are mentioned in Philippi. And shortly after Paul and Silas are freed from jail, it says the people of Philippi, they, they ask him, can you just leave the town? They don't hurt them. They don't abuse them. But they kind of imply we will if you don't leave. So Paul and Silas quickly leave the city. And this is the start of the church of Philippi. Imagine you're writing a letter to this church and wondering what in the world is going on. What were the things that you be, would be praying for? What instructions you would be, would you be giving them? You'd probably be helping them to establish leadership. You'd probably tell them to conduct themselves of the church. But Paul prays for the greatest need that he sees. And that greatest need is their spiritual need. A few chapters later, we see that one of their pastors by the name of Epaphroditus, he's sick. In fact, he's so sick, Paul says, he was near death. He almost died. And certainly Paul prays for Epaphroditus. Certainly Paul prays for the physical and the urgent needs. But when he writes down his prayer and he says, this is at the top of my list. This is the things, these are the things that I'm praying about for you. He's praying for the greatest need. He's praying for their spiritual needs. And this is a reminder for us as parents, a reminder for us as as adults in our church. And as we think about praying for the children of our church, do not neglect 
to pray for their greatest need. There is much that we need to be in prayer for when it comes to the young people in, the, in, the, in our church. Pray for their careers. Pray for their education. Pray for their health. Pray for their spouses. And we should pray for all of those. But remember that all of those are secondary compared to their spiritual needs. Jesus said that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I would add, out of the heart, the mouth Praise. And if we would look at our prayers, I think we would off, we would see too often what is in our heart, what our desires are really when it comes to our kids. Because what is it that takes place at the top of our prayers? Our prayers reveal our desires and our greatest desire for our children is that they should be spiritually healthy. We should not be content to simply desire good kids with good jobs and good health. Paul says, if that's your desire, it's not big enough. Pray for the greatest need. The second reminder is this. Pray what you teach. Pray what you teach and teach what you pray. If we're going to go through the rest of the book of Philippians, which, which we're not, this is not the beginning of a series on the book of Philippians, but if, if we were, we would, we would notice that this prayer is like a table of contents for the rest of the book. This, this prayer is like a, a preview of coming attractions, a trailer for where Paul is going to go. And in the rest of his letter, Paul spends time teaching these very things that he's praying about. Paul prays for love, and then in chapter two, verses one through four, he, he, Pray, he teaches about love. Paul prays for that they would be pure and blameless, and then he teaches them how to be pure and blameless. Paul prays for fruitfulness and righteousness, and then he teaches about fruitfulness and righteousness. Paul prays for power through Christ, and then he teaches them what that looks like to have power through Christ. Paul prays for the coming day of Christ, and now Paul teaches them about the coming day of Christ. Paul prays for the glory of God, and then Paul teaches them how to live for the glory of God. The things that Paul prays for are the things that Paul teaches them. Paul doesn't simply go into his prayer closet and and pray these things and then say, I hope they figure it out. Lord, I I hope you do the work that I'm wanting you to do. I'm hoping you make them loving, pure, blameless, fruitfulness, and fruitful. He does that, but then he comes out of his closet and he teaches them. Parents, you wake up in the morning before your kids arise and you, you pray for these things, but do you ever throughout the day stop and teach them? Deuteronomy 6 tells us as we are going about our day, we are to have our mouths filled with teaching and instructing our children. Ephesians chapter 5 says we should set aside time to instruct our children in the fear of the Lord. We see these two principles of as we're doing life, And then intentionally setting aside time to teach. Yes, we need to pray for our children, but we need to stop and teach them the things that we're praying for them. And this is Paul saying this. This is Paul praying this. Paul, the the greatest Bible teacher outside of Jesus that there ever was. But in his prayer, we see him admitting something. We see him admitting something. We see him admitting that he as a teacher is not enough. Paul, the greatest teacher outside of Jesus, realizes that his teaching on being loving, his teaching on being pure, and so on, is not enough. Because what he is teaching are things that only God can accomplish. So Paul teaches 
but then he also prays. We, we want to, we typically err on one side or the other. We're really good at teaching, but do we ever stop and, and pray for those things that we're teaching? Admitting my teaching is not enough, God, you have to work. Or maybe we're really good at praying, but do we ever stop and, and teach our children? Susanna Wesley was someone who understood the importance of praying and teaching. Susanna was the mother of 19 kids. 19 kids, although nine of them didn't sur- survive past infancy. So she had nine children die in infancy. But she prayed faithfully for her children. And as a mother of so many kids, you can imagine that was hard to do, hard to find time to do. And, and the way she would do this and the way she would let her kids know that she should not be disturbed is she would go into a corner and she would take her apron and she would pull her apron over top of her and sit in the corner and pray. And her kids knew that was a big do not disturb sign. Don't mess with mama. Mama's praying. But then she would also, one, one story I read said that she would take an hour every week with one child and teach them. She prayed and she taught. Don't forget, pray for your kid's greatest need, but teach those things that you're praying for. One of the great privileges we have as parents, one of the great privileges we have of, of spiritual parents and grandparents in this church to teach and to pray for the children that God has brought into this church. For two reminders from Paul, we go to two great requests from Paul. Now we go from context to content. And Paul's prayer can fall under two headings. Paul prays for a growing love and Paul prays for a righteous character. Just reading those headings, can you think of two things that you would want to see in your kids more than a, a growing love and a righteous character? In the lives of the children that grow up in this church and are sent out from this church, that they would be known as those who love others and love God. And they would be known as those who have a righteous character. What is what does this look like? First, let's look at the growing love in verses nine and ten. Paul says this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. There are three things to notice about what Paul prays for, and we can see them marked off by the commas in our English translations. First, he prays that their love would abound, and not only just abound, but it would abound still more and more. And then he prays that this love would abound with knowledge and discernment. And then finally, he says that the purpose of this abounding love and knowledge and discernment is so that they would approve what is excellent. First thing he says is he prays that that their love would be a, a growing love, a love that abounds. And I pray that your love would abound more and more. We heard Paul pray something similar in his prayer to the Thessalonians when he he prayed that when he prayed that the Lord would increase and abound in, that the Lord would make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. This is a recurring theme in Paul's prayer. He desires that within the churches, there would be an ever-increasing love. This word abound is the word pereseu, pereseu. And it means to be abundant or plentiful. One commentator said it means to cause to superabound, to overflow, to be in affluence, 
to excel or to be in abundance with the implication of being considerably more than what would be expected. And again, remember, Paul prays for this and then he says, oh yeah, and still more and more. I pray that it would superabound and then still more and more superabound. Paul prays in this kind of language and similar places. We saw in Thessalonians, he prays that their love would abound. In Romans, he prays that their hope would abound. That the God of, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound, overflow in hope. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50, verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul is not interested in a little love or a little hope or a little work for the Lord. He is praying that in all of these things, believers would abound. And this is in spite of the fact that there is already evidence of these things in their lives. In each of these letters, he points to the fact that they have hope, that they have love, that they have, they are doing work. But he wants to see more. Just to catch the idea of this, notice what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Now concerning brother, brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, but I'm going to write to you anyway. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, another translation says, but we beg you, do this more and more. Paul is not interested in the status quo. He is not interested in in a good life with a little Jesus on the side. He wants their lives to overflow with the fruit of their relationship with Jesus. You know, some of us, we might, we might be scared to pray this for our kids. You know, what if God sends them to the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa? Or maybe even worse, what if people view them as religious nuts? I want my kids to be normal. So we pray that they would have good jobs, good families, good health, and then we add on to that maybe a little fire insurance, a little get out of hell, a little Jesus on the side. Paul says, no, I am praying that they would be viewed as fools for Christ. I'm praying that they would abound in love. This word abounds is the same word that that is used in the Gospels to describe the feeding of the 5,000 and to describe the food that was left over after the feeding of the 5,000. Now, you remember what it started with. We started with just a, a few loaves of bread and a few fish. But after Jesus multiplied, it says they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. That's that word abound. There were broken pieces that abounded. And and seeing that word used in this context, we're reminded that when Jesus is in the midst of something, no matter how small our offering is, there is always enough to abound. This is a good reminder as we're praying with our mothers for our children. But it's also a good reminder as we are praying for our mothers with their children. Mothers, I know at times you, you feel like the disciples did when they looked at the meager offering of the young boy. They said, what is this? What is a few loaves and fish for such a large crowd? What do I have to offer in comparison with the task I have? In raising these children. I have limited energy, limited wisdom, limited time, and limited sleep. 
what is that for such an enormous task? But when we put what we have, as as small as it may be, in the hands of Jesus, He can cause it to abound. To be more than enough. To overflow the banks. So not only should we pray that the love of our kids abound, but that we should we should pray that our love for our kids would abound and, and place it in the hands of the only one who can cause our meager attempts at love to abound. Again, this is only possible if the love that we have to give is constantly replenished with the love that we have received from the God who is love. There's a story uh, that Lawrence of there's a story told of Lawrence of Arabia who once brought a group of poor Bedouins into, into London, and, and he housed them in a beautiful hotel. The only kind of dwelling they'd ever lived in before that was a, was a tent in the desert, and the, the Bedouins were, were amazed at this, and what struck them most of all, what they became fascinated with, was the faucets in the hotel. In the desert, water was hard to come by. But in the hotel, they merely had to go up and turn the faucet, and, and all this water just came gushing, all that they needed. When Lawrence helped, helped them pack their bags, he discovered that they had taken the faucets off of the sinks and had put them into their bags. And they believed that if they possessed the faucets, they would possess the water. We are like those faucets. Unless we are connected to the pipeline of spiritual water, we are as useless as detached faucets in the Bedouin's bags. Mothers, the only way that you will be able to abound in love for your children is if you are connected to the source of love, which is God. And, and I say that to all of us. If we want to love others well and love our children well, we must be filled with the, ever, the never-ending supply of God's love because He is love. must be connected to the pipeline. Without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. A love that grows... Is a love that abounds, a love that grows, and a love that Paul is praying for is a love that is grounded in knowledge and discernment. I'm praying that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The word that Paul uses here for knowledge is the same word we saw last week, epignosis. Which, if you remember, is different than simply the other Greek word for knowledge, which was gnosis, which is where the Gnostics came from. But gnosis refer, epignosis refers to a, a deeper knowledge, a relational knowledge. Now Paul does not clarify in this, in this passage who the object of love should be. But we can assume he's, he's speaking and praying for love in, in two different directions. A, a, a vertical love, a love for God, and a horizontal love, a love for each other and for others. These are the two great commandments that Jesus gave us, that we would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. And Paul is praying that his spiritual children would obey both of those commands. They would love God and they would love others. But but this love is not merely an emotional love. This love is not merely a sentimental love, but it is a love that is grounded in true knowledge, or as the New American Standard says, a love that is grounded in real knowledge. As we think about this term, epigenosis, applied to our prayers for our children, we are reminded that our desire is not simply that our kids know a lot about God. 
We do good about making sure our kids know a lot about God. They, they memorize scripture. They read the Bible. They, they're saturated with the word of God. And, and that's vital. That's important. But that must lead to a knowledge of God and with God. They must come to know him personally. That Jesus is not merely their parents, Lord and Savior, but their own. I've said before, at least once from this pulpit, God has no grandchildren. He only has sons and daughters. Our children will not get to heaven because they are our children. They will only get there because they are God's children. They will not experience the abundant and everlasting life here on earth because they are our children, but only in a relationship with God as his son and his daughter. Which means that they must have a love for God that is grounded in a personal relationship with God. But in order to have that relationship, they must know him. You cannot have a relationship with someone that you do not know. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and we we know this verse well, that, that if you have all the knowledge in the world, but you don't have love, you're what? Paul says nothing. We, we know that verse well. We love that verse to kind of slap it to the, 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 the eggheads, the big, the guys with the big theological knowledge. But notice what Paul says in Philippians. He says, if you have all the love in the world, but you have not, if you have all of the love in the world, but you have not knowledge, that's not good either. It's not good to have knowledge without love, but it's just as not good to have love without knowledge. Our love for God brothers must be grounded in knowledge. In Romans 10, Paul writes that I bear witness, and he's speaking of the Jews, that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They have a zeal, they have a passion, they have a love, but they don't have knowledge. I fear that this verse could be the motto for too many youth groups in too many churches. The goal, and I speak, I say this as a former youth pastor, who bought into this trap too many times. The goal is zeal, but it's done in a vacuum of knowledge. Last week at the business conference, Kayleen was at, she was talking uh, with a wife of a youth pastor who said that their church has just told them that their youth meetings, they were no longer allowed to have Bible studies. But instead, it should just be a time of food, fun, and games. A, A weekly pizza party. We're not going to get, we're not going to get the kids. Our, our youth group, our church has been impacted by COVID. It's dwindled. We've lost so many. We're not going to get the kids to come if you teach them Bible. So let's just have fun. Let's just get them in the door. That sounds good, perhaps. But the problem is what you win them through is what you win them to. What you win them through is what you win them to. You win them to the youth group with pizza and games. All you've won them to is pizza and games. We have forgotten that the goal of youth ministry is actually ministry. Connecting kids to God through a relationship with Jesus. We must have knowledge about God. Our kids must have a knowledge about God. We must have a knowledge about God. And a knowledge with God, a relationship with God. To knowledge, Paul adds discernment. This is the only time this word discernment is used in the New Testament. If you were to look up the word discernment in the dictionaries, one of the ones that I found, Webster's Dictionary Online, said that discernment is the quality of being able to grasp and comprehend what is obscure. 
In other words, it's the ability to understand things that are not easily understood. While this Greek word is used only here in the New Testament, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old, it's used 23 times, and 22 of those times are in the book of Proverbs. In fact, in the opening introduction to Proverbs, Solomon writes about why he is writing this letter, a letter to his son, a letter to his children. He says, this is why I'm writing it, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. And parents, if you want to raise discerning kids, one of the best things that you can teach them to do is to read the book of Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. There Many months have 31 days. Encourage them to develop the habit of reading one chapter of Proverbs every day and then to pull from those chapters just one or two proverbial statements that are made and to bring them to you, underline them or write them down and bring them to you and to, to discuss them with you. It's a great way to set our kids on the path of discernment. Later on in the opening chapter of Proverbs, Solomon writes this, How long, O naive ones, will you love simplicity? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. And that word knowledge at the end is this same word discernment. Fools hate discernment. They don't even attempt to discern. And this is particularly true when it comes to the area that Paul is referring to, the area of our love. In our culture, love is merely a feeling. If it, if it feels good, then it's love. Can you think of anything more important to be praying for our kids and that they would be discerning in their love? Not simply in, in who they love and not simply in terms of sexual love, though that is certainly an area of prayer, but also simply in what it means to actually show love to others. Culture tells us that love would never offend. But yet we know that sometimes that the truth offends. And to speak the truth often will come across as unloving. And to buy into the world's reaction, we'll say, well, we just need to adjust our truth. But we need to teach our kids to be people of truth. And to understand that sometimes speaking the truth is not perceived of as love by the world. But the loving, most loving thing we can do is to speak truth. Our kids need to be able to see through the cultural facades and to be able to be people who, as John says, to love in the truth. I love you in the truth, Paul, John writes. From the ability to discern and to have a knowledge Love that grows in knowledge. This is the goal, Paul says, so that you may be able to choose what is best. Or what is excellent is the word that he uses in the ESV. Again, the so that tells us that this is the purpose of a growing love. To be able to approve and to be able to choose what is excellent. Later on in this letter, Paul admonishes us to think about the things that are excellent. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Fix your mind on these things. And here in the opening prayer of Paul, we see that the reason we should be thinking about these things is because the choosing of these things is the ultimate act of love to God and to others. The language that Paul uses here refers to choosing what is different because it is superior. 
Don't you long for our children to make that choice, to choose the superior? A verse that has been my prayer for my children ever since we have had children comes from Jeremiah chapter 6, where Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. This has been my prayer for for my kids, and I invite you to make this a prayer for our kids to to look for the ancient paths, to look for the, the good way and to walk in it. To walk in the good way, the better way, the best way. The word approve means to put something to the test. It was often used to describe the testing of, of metals or the examining of animals. It's the word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he says that we are to test everything. Test everything. NASB says examine everything carefully and hold fast to the excellent. In the Gospels, Jesus rebukes his people or the people of that day for their lack of this testing. He says, you know how to test and analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky? But why do you not analyze this present time, the New American Standard? That word analyze is this word approve. Is that not true today? We know how to analyze the stock market. We, we know how to analyze the weather. We know how to analyze our business ventures. Are we raising kids who know how to be discerning about the time that we are living in? An, educa- an educational study was done in which a group of people were presented with a new concept. Presented with a new concept. 50% of them believed the new concept immediately without any thinking. 30% didn't, but likewise, they did that. They, they didn't believe it without any thinking. 15% said, well, we want to think about it a little bit before we make our minds. But they never actually asked any questions for clarification. They never actually did any thinking, never analyzed it. And only 5% analyzed all the details before coming to a conclusion. The result of this study was that apparently 5% of the population thinks, 15% thinks that they think, And 80% would rather die than think. That's sadly the reality. If we're we're honest with ourselves too often, if we presented all the things, if we were to break up, 80% of the time we don't really think about it. 15% of the time we we say we're going to think about it, but don't think. And 5% of the time we're actually discerning. Paul says, I want you to be 100% of the time approving and weighing and examining to see what is best. From a prayer of a growing love, we move to the prayer of righteous character. Just two points under this heading. And the first is this, that they would be pure and blameless. Verse 10 is, so that and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. A few weeks ago, we looked at that word blameless. So let me look at this, spend the time thinking about this word pure. The NASB, the word is sincere, and that's what this word means, in order to be sincere. And it's actually the combination of two Greek words, one that implies judgment, and one that implies or refers to judging something or 
one refers to judgment, one refers to the light of the sun. And what this means is to examine something by the light of the sun. You ever picked out an outfit from your closet or your, your husband picked out an outfit from the closet and it might, he thought might, he thought it looked good in the artificial light in your bedroom and the dim light of the closet and you walk outdoors and you look at him and take one look at him or take one look at yourself in the sunlight and you realize that doesn't match. Everything looks different. The coloring looks different when it's brought into the sunlight. It's brought and exposed to the pure light. It's true colors come out. That's what this word implies. Paul is praying that when we are exposed to the sunlight, there wouldn't be any hidden colors that are exposed. There wouldn't be any hypocrisy in our life, any hidden sins. James Montgomery Boyce illustrates this word pure by pointing to one of the biggest industries of the day, in Paul's day, and that was the pottery business. Just like the products of our industries today, there was a different level of quality. And the most cheapest and the most common and cheapest pottery was the thick, solid pots that were made for everyday use. And you can find those all over archaeological sites today. They're, they're broken and they're, they're, they're all over the sites. Every, every home had multiple solid, thick, solid pottery pots. But the finest pottery and the rarest pottery and the expensive pottery was very thin. It had almost a, a clear color and was very difficult to make. And because it was so fine, it was fragile and prone to breaking in the production process. But before it was put into the fire and after it was put in the fire. And if it was broken, the, the right thing, the ethical thing to do was to scrap that piece and start over again. But you can imagine the frustration of spending painstaking hours forming a pot into this thin and delicate piece only to have it break as you pull it out of the fire. This led some to try to salvage their work by taking a a hard and a pearly wax and filling the crack and putting the pieces back together and then painting over them to conceal the cracks. But the way to discover if this had been, if this had been done to the piece that you were about to spend your hard earned money on was to take that piece outside, out from under the tent and to hold it up to the sunlight. And there in the sunlight, the dark lines of the crack were evident and you knew that this piece was not what it claimed to be. This led some pottery makers to put a label on their pottery, sign Syrah which is where we get our English word sincere, which literally means without sign wax, Syrah. It's also used in the world of honey makers. If you wanted to know a, a honey was pure honey and not mixed with wax, you would hold it up to the sunlight and see that it was sign Syrah. It was sincere. It had no wax. Paul prays that when we are held up to the sunlight, S-O-N, when we are held up on the day of Christ, he prays that our lives would be sincere. That there wouldn't be any hidden faults. Of course, for us, we know, admitted this morning, that there are faults. There are cracks, there are mistakes, and there are even blatant sins. But the thing we are told to do is to do what? Bring it into the sunlight. First John chapter one, verse seven through nine says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. 
But if we say we have no sin, we, we paint over the cracks, we, we hide our sin and pretend that it's not there, when we walk into the light, our deception is obvious. And the truth is not in us. But as we walk in the light, if we confess our sins, because we have them, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Parents, this reminds us that our goal is not to present our kids perfect parents. Adults in this room, what the children of this church need is not people who present themselves as perfect people. What they need is to see people who have sins, who have faults, who have weaknesses, but have been redeemed. And through their weaknesses, through their faults, through their cracks, the the redemption and the light of Jesus shines because they know that they too will make mistakes. And that they can call out and cling to the Savior who forgives their sins. Just as the sins of their parents and the adults in their church. Finally and quickly, that they would be fruitful and ready. Paul pictures the Philippians standing before Christ on that last day as a fruit tree that is weighed down with the fruit of a righteous life. But notice how this fruit of righteousness comes. It comes through Jesus Christ, which goes back to that illustration of, from Lawrence of Arabia. If we want our kids to be fruitful, if we want them to bear the fruit of good works, if we want them to bear the fruit of the Spirit, that can only happen through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The only way for our children to produce the fruit of righteousness is if they are connected to the source of righteousness. Too often my parenting is like a man who goes into his orchard orchard, and, and doesn't see the fruit that he wants to see, so he takes out a roll of duct tape and starts taping fruit to the branches. Here's an apple, Here, here's a pear, here's an orange, here's the fruit that I'm looking for. But then he comes back the next day and finds the fruit has fallen off. So he picks it up and, and grabs another roll of tape and maybe starts double taping this time. All the while the tree itself is dying because it's not being cared for. It's not receiving the nutrients that it needs in order to be a fruit tree. If we want to see love in our kids... The way to nurture that is not simply to teach them what love is or to tell them what love is or to demand them that they be more loving. But the way to produce love is to connect is to connect them to the God of love. Who sends his spirit to produce the fruit of love in our lives. And let me just say, as we look at this verse, this 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 ending of verse 10 and verse 11. A few weeks ago, we prayed for the many children who are represented in this church that are not saved and the burden that many of you parents have. And let me simply remind you that the day of Christ is not here. Story of Augustine. I don't have it in my notes, so I'm probably not going to remember and I probably should close. But the story of Augustine lived as a early church father. Before that, he lived as a wayward son, despising his parents' teaching, running from the Lord for many days, living in, in sin, but his mother Monica pursued him and, and literally pursued him. He tried to, he tried to trick her. He tried to escape her. He, he abandoned her. He, she couldn't find where he was, but eventually she found him and followed him into the next town. And she pursued him physically, but she pursued him in her prayers. And many years after many years of wayward living, Augustine 
through a, just walking in the walking in a, a, a fruit on an orchard and hearing someone yell, "Pick up and read." That's all it was. Pick up and read. And he picked up the Bible and he read and he was saved. And he credits it to the prayers of his mom. I just encourage you, the day of Christ is not here. Keep praying. Keep pursuing. Keep pleading. And just quickly, finally, what is the goal? The one goal in Paul's prayer is this. To the glory and the praise of God. This is his desire for the Philippians. It's, it's not that they would be a testimony to Paul, the great pastor and church planner. It's not, but it's that they would be a testimony to God. Is this the goal for our children? That their lives would bring praise and glory to God. If so, we will parent differently and we will pray differently. In the middle of a transatlantic flight, the pilot's voice came across the intercom and said, I got good news and I got bad news. The bad news is we've lost all instrumentation and don't know where we are. The good news is we have a tailwind and we are making great time. Sadly, this is how the world is living their lives and how many parents are parenting their children. They have no guiding instrumentation, but they have a great tailwind and they're sailing through the parent years quickly. We, however, know where we're going. And we know where our kids are going. So let's pray in light of that. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. There's nothing in this world that makes us realize our need for grace, our need for your spirit, our need for your strength in parenting. There's nothing that drives us to our knees more frequently than our kids. And Father, I pray that our kids in this church And the parents of kids in this church would know that they are in a church who is praying with them and for them. Pray that we would become that. A church that prays with our mothers and with our fathers and for our mothers and for our fathers. And help us to pray for those things that matter. And help us to teach those things that we're praying. In Sunday school class and in the conversations that we have and as we come and go from church. May we be faithful, faithful, mature believers and disciples of the children you have entrusted to this fellowship. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you, if you would, to stand. And let me send you out with this benediction from Jude. Just a great word as we think about our failings, our weaknesses, go knowing this. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great might, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. You are dismissed. Go.